Amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Edgar. Jesus is coming. It's why we assemble. It's also why we send missionaries to the ends of the world to share that good news. Good morning. Why do some of you look like you could have used another hour of sleep? And if you're looking around and saying, I don't see some of my friends here this morning, we'll give them about 30 more minutes or so. Well, sometime in the 5th century, a young teenage boy, uh, Neon Padrig, was kidnapped by pirate raiders and uh, hustled off to a new country. And for six years, Padrig lived as a slave boy doing the work of a shepherd. But then an opportunity came for him to escape, and he miraculously returned to his home country, England, where he enrolled in a school, actually got a college education, a Christian education, and was ordained a priest. Then the call came. It was really a vision, right from the heart of God to the heart of Padraig. He was to return to the country where he had been held captive as a missionary with good news. And so he did. We don't know much about the specifics of Padraig's ministry, except that he wrote he baptized thousands, ministered to the families of kings, and ordained a number of priests who planted churches throughout the pagan land. Missionary Padraig had become a world changer. And it wasn't long before Padraig became recognized as the patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick. And on March 17th of this year, which is, I believe, this Wednesday, people around the world will celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I wonder if they know the rest of the story. Today, I don't think we've gathered necessarily to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I see a little green out there. But we have gathered to celebrate missions and to emphasize taking the word, making disciples, Christ-like disciples, to the nations. Our mission council, council chaired by Candace Brooks, our mission president, asked me to share because of my experiences as a missionary. Um, as many of you know, Connie and I, uh, we, we uh, ministered together uh, with our children in Russia along the side of uh, Pastor Chuck and Carla Sunberg. Chuck was our, Pastor Chuck was our official boss, and he was a perfect boss, I might add. First of all, we live 650 miles apart. That may have had something to do with it. Also, uh, communication wasn't, not, wasn't all that good. I'm not sure he knows what we were doing. <laughs> but I never once felt the urge to tell my boss to take a hike. You know, we were barely living and working in the same country. Uh, but those were good days. Those were days, uh, very exciting days. Those were days that emphasized over and over again, we serve a missionary God who is passionate about redeeming man and making and planning his church and growing his church around the world. You know, missions in the Church of the Nazarene goes all the way back to our beginnings. And, and in fact, you might even say we were about missions before we were officially organized. I was reading uh, in our church manual. In fact, I brought my copy this morning. I actually used it to prop up my notes. But I was reading in our church manual, which is not a good read for the sleepless, or is a good read for the sleepless, that as we organized our church back in 1908... Various groups that agreed to join already had missionaries and mission activities in such places as Mexico, the Cape Verde Islands, India, Japan, and also South Africa. As our church began to spread across the United States, mission activity also grew and spread around the world. 
And speaking of our church manual, one indigenous group of Nigerians somehow got a hold of a, of a, of a Nazarene manual. And they began to read it, and they decided that's what they wanted to be. And they began to plant churches and evangelize according to our church's doctrines and teachings. And sometime in the mid-1980s, 40 years later, they informed our church headquarters of, of their mission activity. And shortly thereafter, 39 churches with 6,500 members became a part of the International Church of the Nazarene. Today, a mission force of 600-plus missionaries working in approximately 153 world areas, carrying out a variety of ministries, represents our church's mission activities on the field side of things. And there is a field side of things, and then there's also the home side of things. And we should feel very excited about being a part of a mission-minded church, a church that continues to send missionaries, is passionate about taking the word and making disciples Christ-like disciples in the nations. You know, missions has always been the heartbeat of God. You remember in the garden, after Adam and, Adam and Eve disobeyed, they hid from God. And we read in Genesis 3.8, Genesis 3.8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Man may, ha- may not have known it, but he was lost. What did God do? Look at verse 9. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? God went looking. He went seeking for man. He had some bad news, but he also had some good news. Man would receive, you might say, another chance. In verse 20 we read, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. There would be life and there would be purpose. And then in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. There would be life, there would be purpose, and also God would make provisions for man. Then we read of God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12:3. I'll bless you, Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abe, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. So go make disciples in the nations. God has always been a missionary God. And the question is, has anything changed? How serious should we be? How serious are we about making Christ-like disciples in the nations? Well, I'd like to suggest this morning that this postmodern culture that we find ourselves in, it's getting more and more difficult for a number of reasons for the Western Evangelical Church to maintain a passion for the lost rather than missions becoming a lost passion. For one thing, and I don't think this will surprise us much, missions is not very popular in our world today. I was attending a, a Ball State graduate class on one of our furloughs. And at the beginning of a brand new class, the process, I'd like for us to go around and I'd like for you to induce yourself. And when it came to my turn, I said, you know, my family and I are living and working in Russia as missionaries. Well, I wish you could have seen the class response. I wasn't prepared for it. It wasn't very pretty. And one student summarized it well when he said to me after class, so, so you feel good, you feel good going into another culture who has views and imposing your own personal views. Well, it's nice to meet you too. But that's really how he saw it. My going was evidence of arrogance, and it was also 
evidence of a lack of tolerance on my part. Tolerance. Did I have tolerance? Should I have tolerance? I think it depends on how you define it. In the old days, tolerance was respecting each other. It was listening to each other. And that sounds okay. That's probably good. But it never meant I will embrace your views and accept your views along with my own. Now tolerance means not only should all views be heard, but all views are equal or should be equal. If you think about that, how can that be? You know, I understand and we understand that a lot of things can be false. Two plus two is five. Two plus two is six. No, two plus two is seven. A lot of things can be false, but only one thing can be true. Two plus two is four. It's not 3.99, which is close. It's four. So how can I be tolerant if it means to accept all views as truth? And if all views are true, if all views are true and an equal, it would be arrogant and futile to go into the nations with the intention of making Christ-like disciples. Well, at the center of this postmodern thinking are, are philosophies, and you've heard about them, uh, naturalism and humanism and Darwinism, just to name a few. And you can look long and hard into these philosophies, and you're not going to find a missionary God. In fact, you're probably not going to find any God at all. What do they teach? What do they teach? What do they believe? What is now popular, popular thinking and prevalent thinking and thought in our schools and our universities today? Well, here's just a few statements. There's just a few statements from well-known postmodern thinkers and teachers, writers, that uh, epitomize modern-day thinking. First, there are no gods or purposely forces, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no free will, no life after death, no, no ultimate meaning in life. Thank you, Dr. William Provine. You know, with that thought in mind, why bother to even get up out of bed? Here's another one. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Dr. Carl Sagan, a naturalist. And Sagan would also say, if you feel the urge, if you happen to feel the urge to look beyond the cosmos to a higher being, suppress the urge. It's just a figment of your imagination. And it's probably a result of bad pizza or something. One more. If a man is a product of evolution, one species among others, in a universe without purpose, then man's purpose is to live for himself. Paul Kurtz, the father of secular humanism. With this kind of thought becoming more and more popular, we can understand why our culture says there's no need to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. Church, your efforts are futile. They're ridiculous, and you are arrogant, and you are self-serving. And it's sometimes it's even stronger than that. That's our culture. Maybe we're not surprised. We've heard it. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. But what about the church? What about the church? That's really what we're about. Well, unfortunately, postmodern thinking is also infiltrating the church. A few years ago, George Barna surveyed the church in an effort to determine what percent of evangelical Christians held a strong world view. A worldview is how you see the world. And it influences what makes you tick and just about everything you do and believe. And it also influences what you do to make Christ-like disciples in the nations and how you feel about that. Chuck Colson recently wrote, The church's singular failure in the recent decades has been the failure to see Christianity as a life system. A life system or a worldview that governs every area of our existence. 
Well, the results of George Barna's survey were disturbing. And I know it's just one survey, but we oftentimes look to him as a good source of information for the church. The results suggested that less than 10% of evangelical Christians today hold to a biblical worldview. 10%. One of the 10 questions that Barna asked on his survey was, does a Christian... Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? Do we have a responsibility to make Christ-like disciples in the nations? You know, while it's likely this morning the majority of us say, yes, the Bible commands it, it's clear, this question received a mixed response. Other questions on the survey dealt with Christians' opinion of the Bible. Is it inerrant and is it really God's word? And questions about Satan, is, was he a real being or is he a real being? And other important questions on the subject of truth. One of the strong precepts of, modern, of postmodern thinking is that there is no such thing as absolute moral truth or truths. And as crazy as it may sound, postmodern thinkers would actually say there is absolutely no such thing as absolute truths. If you think about that, how can you even say that? I know it's a little early in the morning. The issue of truth and how the church deals with it is oh so important. And what has happened and is happening is many individuals who call themselves Christians these days are getting more and more soft on truth. And they're falling for what Rick Warren calls the myth of sincerity. Have you heard of that? The myth of sincerity. It's a belief that says as long as a person is sincere about something, as long as they're passionate about something, yeah, they're probably okay. Leave them alone. What it dismisses is the fact that sincere people can be sincerely wrong, can't they? And if you think this thought through, the myth of sincerity will chip away at a church's passion for missions because is anyone really lost? Truth has been Satan's enemy and target since the very beginning. And going back to the garden scene with Adam and Eve, we read in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The first question, the first question, we've got... Adam and Eve on the scene and Satan. The first question Satan asked Eve was, did God really say that? Or what is really true? And since that time, Satan's platform has been established on a big fat lie. It's truth versus lie, and we're in a battle. And man has bought into it. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. Suppressing the truth and exchanging the truth for a lie. Truth is a big deal. It's a big deal. Jesus addresses the importance of truth standing before Pilate in John 18, 37 and 38. John wrote, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world. Why? To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. According to Jesus himself, the reason he came to this world, the reason he was born, was to testify to the truth. 
And then Pilate asked, well, what is truth? I used to think that Pilate was opening his mind and heart here to maybe the good news. I could see him sitting on the edge of his throne. He's got a pen and papyrus or whatever it was, you know, in those days. And he was ready to write down this important answer to this important question. But I think we've missed it. I don't think that's what we read here. Today, many scholars believe Pilate wasn't interested in how Jesus defined truth or anything that Jesus said for that matter. His question was more like a statement, ah, what is truth? As if to say it doesn't exist or matter, like many today. Postmodern thinking is not new. It's Satan's lie that has deceived the masses since the very beginning. And if we allow this kind of thinking to get a strong hold on us, we'll go soft on truth, putting a damper on our passion for ministry and for missions. Tolerant we might be, a little less offensive to those who check us out we might be, but not the hospital for sinners that we're called to be, and not the backbone and the support and the base for missions that we need to be. The Apostle Paul, writing to a younger Timothy, uh, kind of summed up well the problem then and the problem today. In 2 Timothy 4.3.4, he wrote, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers, humanists, evolutionists, Darwinists, etc. A great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn instead, turn aside to myths. The fact is, man has his own desires. And he doesn't want to hear he's a sinner. He doesn't want to hear that he's in need of a Savior. He doesn't want to hear that there are moral truths and absolutes or truths like there is a hell to shun. That's not very exciting. So he finds teachers, and there's a lot of them to tell him what he wants to hear. And there are a lot of things to buy into. Because a lot of things can be false. But only one thing can be true. A little earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul actually instructs young Timothy um, how to deal with this issue. Or he gave him some practical points on this issue. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them the repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We better know our stuff. We better be prepared to teach and instruct. We better be prepared to meet resistance and expect opposition. But with the right attitude. Paul mentions kindness and gentleness. Lead people to a knowledge of the truth. Paul says people are in a trap. He says people are in bondage and are outright working for the devil and for his cause. In the midst of these difficult days and a world full of people carrying out Satan's plan stands the church. And you can see what we're up against. We are in a war. And you can understand our job and our our responsibility. But like St. Patrick, we can be world changers, what we're called to be. And we can stand for truth. And not waver. And I do praise the Lord um, that 
Grace Point continues to be a Bible-based church, a mission-minded church, a church that sends and strongly supports missionaries and the mission work, and a church that provides a variety of ways for all of us to be involved in making Christ-like disciples in the nations. One of the strong arms of our church's mission program is Work and Witness. Um, since its inception early in the 1970s, some laymen over in Ohio kind of come up with the idea. Um, since its inception, over 150,000 volunteers have traveled at their own expense, typically, to hundreds of mission uh, points to lend a hand and to provide needed resources uh, for mission projects. In total, the volunteers have donated 5,000 years of free labor. Some might say slave labor. Free labor and millions of dollars for needed projects. Um, their efforts have included such things as construction projects and helping with computer, audio, video, technical projects. A group from our church recently was in England helping with audio, video, computer things. And other things like evangelistic campaigns and compassionate ministry work. We hosted a number of teams in Volgograd over the years uh, we were there. And some of our best moments and certainly some of our funniest moments uh, in, in Russia involved a work and witness team from somewhere. I remember one team coming. I cannot remember for the life of me what they did. I don't have a clue. But I do remember a Bible study that some of them, some of the members attended and assisted with in our apartment one evening. After one of the members read some scripture and gave a testimony, an invitation was given. And that evening in our apartment, Yvonne gave his heart to the Lord. Yvonne had been around for a while. But he was very skeptical, and so he was just kind of watching us and trying to figure us out. That evening he made a solid decision. Yvonne told me later, while working with the work and witness team, he noted that they were different. And he said when he saw an old lady... When he saw an old lady down on the floor, washing the floor, he knew that what she professed and what the group professed was real. He said it had to be, and he said he wanted it. And that night at Bible study, he received it. Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior. You know, I've often thought about the miracle of Ivan and his family. Nearly all of them today know the Lord as their Savior, the ones that I know. And there must be a dozen or more of them. And today, members of that family are scattered throughout at least three countries, working for the Lord, teaching, leading youth and worship, serving on church boards, working with kids, and directing summer camps. There's even a grandma, Grandma Juliet, in the mix, who writes and recites poetry for members of the church on their birthdays. I don't remember what the work and witness team accomplished. I don't remember exactly what we did, but I know Yvonne does. And I need to tell you that that particular work and witness team was from this church. And the man who led Yvonne to the Lord and Bible study that night in our apartment was our former pastor, Jerry Stitt. You know, there's many ways to be involved. And work and witness is certainly one of those exciting ways to participate in making Christ-like disciples in the nation. And you never know, even when you're down on your knees washing a floor, how God... They use you. I want to mention quickly, Grace Point has a well-organized work and witness ministry that involves uh, local projects as well as sending uh, groups to mission fields. Um, if you've ever participated in a work and witness uh, 
event, um, trip. Please stand real quick. We want to recognize you. You've been to the field. We thank you. Thank you. These are life-changing experiences, and you always go to give, and you always receive more than you went to give, don't you, Dale? Just the way it works. Pretty exciting. Dale and Lynn Musselman are capable working, uh, working witness coordinators, and under their leadership, they have already organized a trip to Florida this year, and, and later this summer, I believe, they will be taking a, another group to Israel. If you're interested in Israel, see Lynn or Dave. You know, when the doors of when the doors opened for the Church of Nazarene to send missionaries into Russia, there was worldwide support and excitement. Remember those days, Pastor Chuck? And there were many individuals who felt led to give donations. And a great number of individuals felt particularly led to give money for Bibles to Russia. The money flowed in. And we bought Bibles and we distributed Bibles like no one's business. But despite our efforts to purchase them and distribute them, the account kept growing. And Pastor Chuck, I I remember at one time we had around 65,000, at least $65,000 in the bank designated Bibles for Russia. For us in Volgograd, that meant going out into the street and doing mass distributions and then also passing them out to newcomers um, in our Sunday services. Well, one Sunday after church, a fine Russian layman came up to me and said they were gravely concerned that some people were actually taking two or three Bibles. And they had reason to believe that one of our fine sisters was actually taking those Bibles out to the street where she was selling them. They suggested we put a kibosh on our Bible distribution program. But then I remembered the account, $65,000 plus. And then I also thought of the church closet where we stacked hundreds of Bibles for distribution. It was nearly full. And so I said to that layman, you know, I hear what you're saying, but our closet is full. And if the Lord returns and finds our closet full, full of his living word, I I don't think that he's going to be real happy with us. Well, we decided that we would continue Bible distribution. And we did, and we never ran out of Bibles. And our closet continued to be at least partially full. It wasn't long after that before headquarters decided since we had such a large fund that was not being depleted, they would redirect some of our funds to other Eastern European countries where they could buy needed Bibles, which was okay, and so they did. But I have to tell you, even today, I still think back and I still wonder if we always did our very best. These are challenging days for the church. We're in a battle, and also for missions in a number of ways. And I know economically speaking, things are are really shaky. But as we're challenged today and next week to support missions in in a real tangible way, would you look inside your closet and just make sure you're doing your very best? Faith promise is not about how much I gave last year. Um, or how I feel about my economic future, or how our things are going this year. Faith promise is about taking a step of faith and doing what God impresses on your heart to do. Our part, what the local church does, is where missions meets the roads, road, which is our theme for this year's campaign. Where missions 
meets the road. It's us, the local church. Pastor Chuck, come and give us instructions. Uh, Tell us what we can do. And did I mention he used to be my boss?